Church, this morning, if you could please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to pick up in verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, picking up in verse 14. We're going to finish up this section of Paul's letter on freedom and rights, and specifically the sacrifice of those things. But before we do that, I want to just ask a question, maybe two, for us to think about this morning. <clears throat> what does it mean to be free? We're celebrating freedom this week, but what does that mean? What, what is freedom? How free does something have to be for it to still be counted as free? And I'm not talking about cost. I'm talking about the opposite of restriction, limitation. Is it good to restrict freedom? Is it bad? To what degree is it good? To what degree is it bad? Can freedom even be restricted and you still call it freedom? Think about our country. We are the land of the free. But what does that mean? That we have no restrictions? We have restrictions in our country. What are they called? Laws, right? That's a restriction. So when we say because we have some restriction, we can't really be free. We're not really free. That restriction protects us from chaos. And I think you can see that in our country right now as there are some who are advocating for the complete annihilation of any type of bondage or chains that might restrict us from absolute freedom. The result of that is anarchy, lawlessness, fires in cities, mostly peaceful protests. There is a cost, and this is our main point this morning. All freedom comes at a cost. Some costs are not worth it. That sounds strange. It will make sense in just a moment as we dive into our passage this morning. But freedom is a funny thing. We all want freedom. I would argue that we all really don't want absolute freedom. I don't. I don't want a country where no restrictions exist at all. That's why we have politicians. They disagree on which restrictions should be in place. But I think we would all agree some restriction is good. So all freedom comes at a cost. Some costs we'll see are not worth it. So we're finishing up the sixth topic of Paul's letter, as I count them, out of ten. Christian rights and freedoms. And specifically, he's arguing for the giving up of our rights and freedoms as Christians. The sacrifice is for the good of others, but it's also a tool to be used for gospel ministry, that others might be reached with the truth of the gospel. Today, we're going to finish up this section by tying it together with Paul's larger theme here in the passage, God's glory. Before we dive in, I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's Word, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, just as a reminder that we are about to read the divine Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 14. 
Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Holy God, we ask that you would open up your word to us and give us insight and understanding through the power of the Holy Spirit that you have caused to dwell within us because of the work of your Son on the cross in our place. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our God. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. Isn't it a great sound when we hear babies in the worship service? Amen. That's a good sign for a church. I don't know what book I read this in recently, but it was to the effect of when you hear a quiet church with no babies, you are very likely listening to a dead church. So praise God that we have such a glorious sound to listen to. As a brief reminder, this section covers 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10. It's the section we're looking at. We're finishing that up now. And there's a verse that I challenged us a few weeks ago to memorize, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So we'll put it up on the screen right back here. If you think you've got it memorized, fantastic. Don't look at the screen. Just recite it with me. If you need the screen, it's there for you. So 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
This verse summarizes and supports everything in chapters 8 through 10. And now this morning, as we come to verse 14 of chapter 10, we see this. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, this first verse this morning actually summarizes all three of these chapters just like 1 Corinthians 10, 31. In fact, it's really just stating the principle in a different way. There's a positive way of stating the principle and a negative way. The positive way is do all to the glory of God. The negative way is don't do anything to the glory of something else. It's a positive and a negative. The flee from idolatry is the negative side of do all to the glory of God. We touched on this a little bit last week. But as a reminder, Paul is linking here an unwillingness to sacrifice with idolatry. He's about to give one more defense of his position, but before he does, there's this interesting statement here in verse 15. He says, I speak as to, a, as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The phrase, as to sensible people here, is interesting. And I was curious. I went back and looked at the Greek to see if that's exactly how it is in the Greek or if that's kind of our English version of that. And it's like that in the Greek. I speak as to sensible people as opposed to just I am speaking to sensible people. The phrase, as to, implies one of two possibilities. Number one, they're not sensible. They're not a sensible people. But Paul is trying to speak to them in a sensible way. That's option one. The other possibility is that they are sensible people, but they're not being sensible. So he's speaking to them. They can understand if they want to, but they're not. So he's trying to communicate to them and get them to focus in a way that they understand what he's saying. Whichever of these options are true, the fact is that Paul thinks that they are not thinking clearly with this topic. He isn't speaking to sensible people. He's speaking as to sensible people. Now, that's not to say that they are not thinking. It's that they are not thinking clearly. And this is one of the main reasons that we fail to make sacrifices. The reason a sacrifice is hard is because I am being called to give up something I want. I will admit, it would be hard for me to give up something like coffee. I love coffee. The reason it's hard is because I love coffee. If I didn't love it, it's not really a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice because I have an attachment to it. Well, even if I know logically that I should make a sacrifice, it's possible that I still really don't want to. I know I ought to, but I don't want to. My mind says one thing, my heart says another. And this is the struggle in our making sacrifices. In our culture, we do this all the time, and we probably don't even realize it. We do it every day. Going out to eat, me and my wife, we'll get in the car. I don't know how many other married couples encounter something like this. We start driving, what do you want to eat? Ah, whatever you want. Okay, what about this? Ah, that doesn't sound good. Okay. So what do you want? Uh, anything. Okay, well, what about this place? Ah, that doesn't sound good either. <laughs> well, obviously, something sounds good, something doesn't. What, 
What is guiding our decision-making there? That doesn't sound good to me. I don't feel like having that. You know what we don't think? Well, let me think. Okay, Applebee's, thinking over the menu, calorie counts, what are the fats and everything. We'll look at that up. Most people don't think that way. Some do. Most don't. Most think, mmm, bacon. That sounds really good. Anywhere with bacon, right? We are guided by our feelings. Or parents, your child wants to come up and play. Dad, or Gabriel will always come to me and say, Dad, you want to play Minecraft Legos? That's the thing that he likes to play. Guess what? Sometimes I don't really feel like playing Minecraft Legos. I'm a good dad, and I will go and play. But then there's sometimes, in a moment of weakness, I'll confess to you that I think, I'm not really in the mood to do that. I'm not doing anything important. I just don't want to do that. I just want to sit here and do nothing. I am thinking not with my head, but with my feelings in the moment. The music that we, true, that we choose to listen to when we drive down the road, how we want to spend our weekends, almost all of this is driven by my feeling in the moment. It's the very reason that we start and stop diets over and over and over again. I have mental determination, but eventually my feelings outweigh my mental determination. I just want bacon too bad. The diet's done. I'm not thinking with this. I'm thinking with this or with this. That's what I want. Now, making a decision based on feelings isn't always bad in and of itself. My point this morning is just that we need to recognize how often we do this and how dangerous it could be. One problem, for example, is when we apply the same way of thinking to our spiritual lives. I don't really feel like reading God's Word. I don't really feel like studying or memorizing. That's too much effort. I don't really feel like praying right now. I don't really feel like fasting. I don't really feel like singing. I don't feel like going to church this morning. We might hear something like this and think, that person's just not thinking. That's not true. They are thinking. They're not thinking clearly. They're thinking more with this or this than with this. Every single time we sin, we make the very same mistake. And we try to justify it. Well, I did this because I yelled out something I shouldn't have yelled out because I stubbed my toe and it hurt. Or I dropped a C-clamp on my foot. That doesn't cause that. That's just an unsensible justification for my sin insensible, whatever the word is. Not an English teacher. You get my point. I convince myself it makes sense, but it really doesn't make sense. I did it because I wanted to do it, which leads to our first point this morning. As we think about our freedom in Christ and exercising our freedom, number one, sin never makes sense. Sin never makes sense. The world will tell you different. They will say, well, look, you didn't really have a choice. You had to do this. It's a lie. And it's a convincing lie sometimes. That's why we need to remind ourselves that sin never makes sense. That's not to say that we don't think when we sin. 
course we do. We just don't think clearly. We are not truly sensible in that moment. We're thinking more with our feelings, desires, our appetite, our flesh, than we are with our reason or wisdom or the power of the Holy Spirit. Learning to make sacrifices will teach us to deny our desires and turn from sin. In this case, idolatry. Flee from idolatry. As an aside, this is one of the hidden benefits I've found of practicing fasting. You teach your body that it does not rule your mind. My stomach is not in charge. I am in charge. Fasting teaches you that. It teaches you to deny yourself of something you desperately want so that you can have something better, a heightened time with the Lord. Learning to do this makes it easier to deny your body of the opportunity to sin when you really want it. So Paul starts out here in these first two verses. Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. He wants them to flee idolatry by sacrificing certain rights or freedoms. And he wants to reason with the Corinthians about it. So how does he argue his case? Picks back up in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So here's Paul's argument. When we take the Lord's Supper, maybe we call it communion, we are participating in the body and blood of Christ. And that word is important. In the ESV, it's participation in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? The bread that we break, is it not a participation? We partake. He continues further. We are, per and for those in Israel, are they not participants in the altar? He continues with those sacrifices to demons. I do not want you to be participants with demons. This word appears over and over and over. It's the Greek word koinonia. And you may have heard before this Greek word because it's very popular in Bible studies. It's actually the word that we usually translate fellowship. When we have a fellowship, we have a koinonia. It is a coming together, a making common. The root of that is the idea of commonness or uncleanness. It's the idea that it's just every day. So koinonia is the coming together so that we all share in common. We are one. We are united together. That's the word translated participation right here. It describes a union of people together. They share something in common. So when we take communion, there is a vertical koinonia fellowship that is happening, and then there's a horizontal koinonia fellowship that is happening when we take communion. We are enjoying union with Christ. That's vertical. We see that here in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, there's the word, in the blood of Christ? We are participating with Christ. 
The same thing with the bread. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Then we see in verse 17 this horizontal fellowship. We're enjoying union with one another. It says, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we are enjoying union with Christ and with one another as a church. It means something. So then in verse 18, he gives the example of Israel. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? When they offered a sacrifice, they would sometimes eat part of the sacrifice. It was a way of identifying or uniting with the sacrifice. So here's Paul's point. From both the Old Testament and our New Testament practices, to practice the communion meal and sacrifices means something. It says something. Something is taking place in that moment. It is an intimate association with God and other Christians. Now, why is Paul making this point? This is how Paul wants the Corinthians to think about these pagan rituals. He already said earlier, idols aren't real, they're fake. We know that. We have this knowledge. And he even reiterates that here, picking back up in verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, he already made that point. He's not suggesting that those are actually gods. They're fake. They're not. However, Paul says that their sacrifices and their participation, this fellowship, this koinonia, is demonic. Verse 20. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean, to call it demonic, doesn't necessarily mean that they are worshiping demons, though I think Paul is making that point here. He suggests that they are. It's demonic because it's the same way that demons act. They are worshiping, serving this little idol. They didn't derive the name of this idol by looking at a demon and saying, okay, I'm going to make this like a demon. Okay, wonderful. No, they constructed it, and it is worship to something other than God. That is demonic. It is demonic. It's demonic because it's the same way demons act. Demons have rebelled against God and seek to draw worship away from God by any means necessary. That's demonic. Anything that will draw worship away from God is good, is what a demon would think. Think about what Satan did in the garden. He tempted Adam and Eve to abandon worship of God. How? By replacing it with worship of self. Doesn't it look good? God just doesn't want you to be happy. You can almost hear Satan saying, listen to your heart. He tempted them to let their feelings trump their knowledge of what is right. They were not thinking clearly. In modern practice, 
Satanism is not centered around the idea that Satan is God. It's centered around the idea that I am God. The highest good, according to this line of thinking, is whatever I want to do. One of the core tenets of Satanism is this, do what thy will. Modern translation, do whatever you want to do. And it's becoming very prominent in our culture. I saw a celebrity the other day on TV that had a shirt on, and it had kind of in the old King James English writing, do what thy will on the shirt. Most people would look at that and never connect that with Satanism. I know it is, because I know that about it. Most people don't. Most people would see that and be like, yeah, yeah, we should all be allowed to do what we want to do. It's demonic. Listen to this. It's from a permission slip used to invite children to an after-school Satan club. The first time I heard about this, I thought it was a joke. Then I saw it again. Then I saw it again. This has been over a year now, possibly two years, that this keeps popping up. One of these is from a year ago at a school in, uh, one of these is from Pennsylvania, I think. I don't remember where the other one's from. One of these is from this year, May 2023. Listen to this. This is not a joke. It's been used at multiple schools, and the wording every time is remarkably similar. Permission slip to an after-school Satan club. Here's what it says. Hey, kids, let's have fun at after-school Satan club. Science and community service projects, puzzles and games, nature activities, arts and crafts, snacks, and tons of fun. Parents, your child will learn benevolence and empathy, critical thinking, problem solving, creative expression, personal sovereignty, compassion. The Satanic Temple is a non-theistic religion that views Satan as a literary figure who represents a metaphorical construct rejecting tyranny and championing the human mind and spirit. After School Satan Club does not attempt to convert children to any religious ideology. Instead, the Satanic Temple supports children to think for themselves. Listen to this other one. Very similar. I'm not going to read the whole thing this time. The Satanic Temple is a non-theistic religion that views Satan as a mythical figure representing individual freedom. Your child will learn personal sovereignty. I could keep going. There are a lot of similar phrases that are not coincidental. These are very carefully crafted statements. Individual freedom, personal sovereignty, think for themselves, rejecting tyranny. What they mean by these phrases is not what you think they would mean if you were ignorant of this. They want to liberate a child's mind so that there are zero restrictions on their freedom. That's what they mean by personal sovereignty, rejecting the idea of tyranny. God is a tyrannical overlord that must be rejected. So they do that by promoting this non-theistic religion that views Satan as a literary figure who is metaphorical or mythical. They're not trying to get our children to worship Satan. They're trying to get our children to worship self and to reject authority. 
Think for yourself, little child. Let me tell you how to think. This thinking is demonic. The whole point of this is to get them to worship self. And by so doing, they will not worship God. They will be acting just like Satan. Just like him. In the same way, church, any thought, word, or deed that is done for the glory of self rather than the glory of God is demonic. Our country was founded upon a theistic foundation. And one of the pillars was liberty. But the understanding of that word has changed over time. The founders understood liberty differently than the way that we understand liberty today. It's two different things using the same word. They took liberty to mean freedom to live as we ought to live. I am free to do what is right. But today we take liberty to mean freedom to live as I want to live. It's very different. And it is dangerous. One places a restriction on freedom. That restriction is God. The other seeks to remove all restrictions. God, government, the rule of parents, any restriction is bad. Well, when you remove God from the equation, you get today's understanding of liberty, which isn't really liberty at all. It's demonic worship disguised as liberty. We say, thank God for freedom. Not even realizing that so many in our country are understanding this two different ways. You can't tell me what I ought to do. I am free to do what I want to do. That's what our country is founded on. That is incorrect. It is incorrect. When we are unwilling to sacrifice our freedoms and rights as Christians... We are worshiping at the altar of demons. We may not be worshiping a specific demon, but we are acting in a demonic way, not a Christian way. Which leads to our second point this morning. Idolatry is demonic. It doesn't have to be a little tiki doll to be demonic. Idolatry doesn't have to be a thing that you can touch. Many things are idols. Weigh God's word very carefully here in verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Our God is a jealous God. Not in the sinful way that we get jealous. When I get jealous, it's in a sinful way. But God has a righteous jealousy in a similar way that when I get angry, it is usually not a righteous anger. But when God gets angry, it is a righteous anger. Listen to Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will not tolerate wicked, sinful beings that try to rob him of the glory that's due his name. He will not tolerate that. 
And that leads us to Paul's concluding argument, starting in verse 23. We see the similar phrase that he used earlier. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And he summarizes the points he's already made. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market. He, he reiterates and regurgitates everything here. He circles back around to his original topic, meat offered to idols. In light of all of this, what should we take away? And what is his conclusion? Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. He says you're free to eat the food. No matter who is selling it, no matter who bought it, eat it. It's fine. You're free to eat if an unbeliever invites you to go to one of their feasts. Eat it. It's fine. If you're made aware of the religious nature or ritual, though you are free to eat, you shouldn't. Not because your own liberty is being constrained, but for the sake of the person who informed you, for his conscience. You rightly recognize that idols aren't real, but this other individual will believe that you are worshiping the idol. They will see you as uniting yourself with this act of worship, koinonia, participation. So for his sake, don't. That's Paul's argument. This kind of reasoning is not driven by selfish desire. Selfish desire would say, well, I know it's not sinful. I can't, hear, I can't help what he thinks. That's on him. I'm going to partake. You're free to do that. You're wrong to do that. You're free to do it, but it is not helpful. It is not building up. This kind of reasoning isn't driven by what I want. It is driven by God's glory. This is how sensible Christians ought to think. We don't always think that way. Sometimes we are the as-to people, as-to sensible people. We're not thinking properly. We're thinking more with this than we are with this or this. God's desire is for us to fill the earth with his image. We are divine image bearers. We saw this in Genesis. His desire is, you're in my image. Now fill the earth with it. Fill the earth. Let it be everywhere. Isaiah 43, 7 says that we were created, formed, and made for his glory. The problem is that we can't do this alone. In our own power, we will only ever be selfish idolaters. We must, in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, we must be imitators of Christ. And we can only do this through the power of Christ who dwells in us through faith, through the Holy Spirit. That's the only way this happens. Well, what does it look like? We see it here in verse 31. We've been reciting it for weeks. Whatever you do... Whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. This doesn't just mean doing the commands of Scripture. It doesn't just mean submitting to God. It also means submitting to others. Look at verses 32 and 33. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. 
just like Jesus, Paul doesn't exist to please self. He exists to please others, that they may be saved. Now, Paul is not arguing here for being a people pleaser. That's not what he's suggesting. In Galatians 1.10, he actually suggests that we can't please both God and man. You can't do it. Being a people pleaser means that we please people at God's expense. That's not what he's suggesting here. He's suggesting that we seek to please people at our own expense. This is what it looks like to sacrifice our rights and freedoms as a Christian for the sake of others. What I want doesn't matter if, it, if something else will help bring someone else along to faith in Christ or in sanctification. That is sensible thinking as a Christian. That is how God is glorified in our sacrifices. That's how we flee from idolatry. So this leads to our last point this morning as I close. Number three, living for God's glory comes at your own expense. Living for God's glory comes at your own expense. If we are going to be God-glorifying Christians, we have got to stop caring so much about me, myself, and I. Desiring God is a book that I just I really like a lot. It's been helpful in so many ways. It's a book about finding joy in God above all things. I'm not going to unpack the book for you. If you want to borrow my copy, you're welcome to. Um, there's a ministry that spun off the book, though, called Desiring God. And, and the reason I bring this up is I want to recite the slogan, but I need to give credit to where it's due. I didn't come up with this. I wish I could say I did. Here's what the slogan is. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We cannot be most satisfied in God when we are most satisfied in self. Something's got to give. Jesus gave his life to live for God's glory. He gave his life so that we could live for God's glory. Why should it cost us anything less? It won't. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given for us a perfect model of self-sacrifice in order to live for your glory. Jesus Christ is the perfect model. And you have given him to us so that we might be set free from our bondage and captivity to sin. Not so that we might be absolutely free, but that we might be free to be your servants. To be in submission underneath you. To take your yoke upon ourselves, which is light. Lord God, would you work in our hearts daily to break us from our bad habits of thinking unsensibly or insensibly as Christians. Lord, we want to be sensible people. We want to think clearly and rightly, even if that means that we give up things that we desperately want for the good of others and for the good of the gospel.
Teach us, Lord, to think in such a way. Teach us to flee from idolatry, from this demonic way of living where we live for ourselves at the expense of others or the gospel or your glory. We do not want to live in such a way. We want to have fellowship with you. So, Lord, please bring it about in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.